A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life, and life in the theatre. Now, my guest this week is an actor of whom it was written in some disreputable rag, the, the New Yorker. This actor, now legendary among theatre audiences for his interpretations of classical material, is his own philharmonic of well-tuned instruments. <laughs> my goodness. His voice, at a rumble or a rasp, glides from line to line and feeling to feeling. He turns Shakespeare's flurries and puzzles of language into seemingly inevitable verbal outpourings of unknowable internal processes. His face, similarly, is a map of emotions. Before he speaks, his brows churn and his mouth searches. Whatever he says next has been looked for and somewhere deep in the soul found. That's right. That's right. He's good. He is, by common consent, the greatest classical actor in America. He is John Douglas Thompson. Now, John Thompson has done tons of TV and he's done tons of film, but he is primarily a man of the theater and his appetite for the classical repertory in particular is inexhaustible. He's played Othello seven times and he ain't done with it yet. As you'll hear, he lives and breathes this stuff in a way that I don't know of a lot of other actors who do. Perhaps <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm one of, maybe it's why I, I, I find his mythos so intriguing because I feel like that's my curse too and my blessing. This is the stuff that I live for. And so, as we talk about, I really recognize something in John that I share. And consequently, I suppose I love. It's also extraordinary that I've never seen him on stage. But the way his, his peers, actors that I really respect and admire, talk about him, the way directors that we revere talk about him, the way the press talks about him, it seems clear that he is something absolutely extraordinary. So it was such a huge joy to me on a sunny early summer's day in the West Village in Manhattan in the apartment that I was renting while I did a play in New York. And he was rehearsing to play Claudius in the public theatre Shakespeare in the Park production of Hamlet, um, that we could sit down and unpack all this shared obsession together. Oh, and uh, John is the only guest I've ever had who brings his own percussion, by which I mean he likes to uh, tap or sort of rap on the... Um, desk in front of which we were sitting. I didn't really notice it at the time, but it does sound a tiny bit like light construction work, that there's someone with a claw hammer coming through the wall next to us. It's just, you know, think of it as a tone poem, some underscoring. But we start off talking about the show that I was doing in New York at the time, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, and which John was supposed to see, but couldn't because we were ravaged by COVID. <laughs> And we talk about my slightly cavalier attitude to COVID protocols in my desire to save something of the run of this show that I'd left my family uh, for nine weeks to go and do and which we were barely getting to perform. And as you can hear, John's slightly unorthodox <laughs> tactics when it comes to taking... Uh, COVID tests that he doesn't want to take. Gentlemen, Gentlemen of the Stage, stage Door Johnny Company, company this, this is your Act, act One beginner's, beginner's Call. call. Mr. Mr. Thompson, Thompson and Mr. Cake, Cake to the, the stage, stage, please. 
This, this is your beginners. beginners. Are you guys ever going to have a show in <laughs> I think this is the most affected show by COVID in the city ever. We, we're back up tomorrow night. I know, but only for like three performances. For the weekend, for the last weekend. It sort of doesn't exist. It's terribly sad. sad, John. I mean, I, but how did this happen? Two of my teachers are in the show. Yes. Ryan McElhaney. These were my drama teachers. Yeah. Drama school. And Stephen Bear. Stephen Bear. And I do believe Brian had COVID. Brian was one of the last. So we had, well, yeah, this is a this is a story that goes so far back, but it was a bloody and intensely difficult rehearsal. The actors get together and make this make thing happen out of the weird alchemy of this extraordinary play, the incredible dedication and talent of the company. And just the sheer survival instinct mm -hmm. that takes over, right? To put it on. For, to for us on. all. We are yeah. the ones yeah. standing there, having faceless strangers judging us. Mm -hmm. We cannot suck. We cannot suck, cannot let them down, cannot let yeah. ourselves down. Cannot let ourselves let us do this. Let's yes. do our work. So something extraordinary happened. The Friday, our great mutual friend Aaron Arbus came to yeah. see it. We limped through from Tuesday to Friday. Right. We had a Cinco de Drinco party on Cinco de Mayo, even though it's a, it's a Mexican tradition, even though it's a Spanish play, which was confusing. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a kind of invited audience. So it had that strange unreality of an opening night, you know, where people are laughing too hard. And something yeah. doesn't feel quite real about it. At that point, we'd had one member of the company, a guy called Barzan Akavan, go down with COVID. And Brian, heroically your ex-teacher, yes. had gone on with the book, which as you know- it's an unlosable situation. Yeah. It's hard. It's a kind of an emergency. Yeah. The audience think they're in on something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great. He's a terrific actor. And we got away with it. We went to our Cinco to Drinker party, uh -huh. feeling like a million bucks, which, of That's course, the minute you got COVID in the cup, yeah. what were we thinking? Six of us went down. I got COVID on the Sunday, which is about to do two shows. Uh, we got through another one on Saturday. Flask and a scratchy throat here. And then people just started writing in. I just tested positive. I just tested positive. Then we have two weeks off the show. We're just due to go back mm -hmm. last Friday Would when you, you were going to come and see him. Yes. Yes. And Carmen Ziles, who took over the leading lady role, extraordinary part in this play, she texted me and said, I got COVID. This is like Thursday before the Friday. She said, What do you think I should do? I said, If you don't think, you're going to kill some old person, which I don't think you are, because everybody is masked into far right. now. If you don't object to this morally, COVID protocols are going, being disbanded yeah. after yeah. this show. It's arbitrary. Yeah. I understand it's a tricky thing to do. But what about you just swap your upper lip? <laughs> and we do this fucking play. I keep a basic test of negative. For whenever I need to take a bunch, right? I just get like a young child. You're yes, <laughs> that's what you do. That makes sure that you is so fucking swat. Keep one negative. <laughs> do not date it. Just keep it there. Oh, that's For genius. That exact. Well, yeah. She didn't have a back catalog of negative tests, <laughs> and it turned out she was far too honest, much more honest than I would have been. She turned up on Friday. She tested positive. She was hoping for a miracle. She couldn't do it. So the press were due to come in that weekend, not just your illustrious self, but the press. And then we would have one last week to make it something like a legitimate thing. And as it is now, it's like a tree falling in the forest. It's, it's sad to me how much I realize, having spent all my life sort of, you know, being critical of critics, if that's not an oxymoron, but, you know, sort of sniping about critics. How much one needs uh, yeah, to legitimize to legitimize your show. The history of the piece, right? Absolutely. To legitimize theater. Yeah. I don't know. I always felt I've had a good relationship with critics. Jesus. Yeah, because I don't really blame them. There's only a couple of critics that I respect as far as what they write. Uh, so the others, even if I read them, I'm less likely to take it. Because what you're looking for, what I'm looking for from a critic is that they get it. They get what we set out to do. As a company, not as an individual, because that's another thing, right? Whether you get mentioned or praised or dispraised or whatever the case. Right. But just that they got what we set out to do. So you read them. Oh, yeah. If I'm the lead, put it this way, if I am responsible for the show's success, I probably will read them. 
most likely friends, family will call me about them. I'll just start to get texts. Oh, this is blah, 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 blah. So I don't really need to peek. <laughs> if I'm not getting that, then I'm like, did they come out? Were they really bad? And if they're bad, I want to see them. Because at that point, I got nothing to lose. If they're bad, you want to see them. Yeah, I got nothing to fucking lose. So you don't think that those, those phrases lodge in your head in a difficult way when you have to go on doing it? I'm not saying that they don't, but like I also feel liberated. Now I'll just do whatever the fuck I want to do. I'll just allow my creativity and imagination to take over. I have nothing to lose. I have all to gain at this point. So that's how I think of a bad review. Now, when I first got a bad review, I was playing opposite Viola Davis. Uh, I was uh, Claudio to her in Measure for Measure. Isabella? Isabella. She was at Trinity. Uh, she'd just gotten out of school maybe two years prior and was working at Trinity. This before Viola Davis was. She was just Vi. I played her brother, Claudio. Anyways, the critic didn't like me, liked her, and gave me a horrible review such that I said, I'm going to quit school. This is it. I shouldn't be doing theater. The critic said it. I'm not a good actor. So I think I have all I need here. I'm out. And I literally went to talk to Brian and Steven. I talked to my good friend Eric first. And Brian directed this production. Now, I didn't really intimate to him that I was definitely leaving, but I did intimate to him that I felt really bad about this and like, I don't know what to do. And then my good friend Eric said, come on, just a fucking critic. You can't leave. You know, you've dedicated this poor stuff of your life to this. What else are you going to do? You really love this. You're good. Da, 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 da. And I stayed, but it was enough to contemplate quitting. So yes, a critic can get to you. And for my money, in this country, Johnny, really? there's only like three good critics. One of them left, then Brantley, and I respect it as a critic. His other partner, who's there? Charles Isherwood. Charles Isherwood. I liked he did some good things about me and for me, but he was very harsh. He didn't seem like the kind of critic who, who enjoyed theater, who wanted to promote theater. He seemed like he wanted to tear it down. Because another great critic, friend of mine who passed away, Terry Teachout, he passed away two years, well, a year and a half ago. Terry was really good, really smart, was really about promoting theater and the nature of theater really? and why we should go to theater. He'd never trash a show unless it was outright horrible. Right. So he's that kind of a guy. The two that write for The New Yorker, Hilton all Hilton else, yeah. Who doesn't do it as much anymore. Oh, that's right. So who's there? Vincent Cunningham. Vincent Cunningham, Michael Shulman. Vincent Cunningham and Hilton Alls are like the only two black. There's very few critics of color. Right, 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 right. And that's something that needs to be worked on. Shows. To make things more equitable. Because sure. you got critics going to shows that have no sense of culturally what they're actually looking at. How can they critique it? So that has to change. And I think that is changed. Uh, That's why you see a person like Vincent Gunning. That's why you see a person like Hilton Knowles, but he's been there before. But like, this is why. And I like Vincent. Yeah. I think he's a pretty good writer yeah, I did see. and thoughtful and really gets it. If he doesn't get it, then because he's kind and generous, if he doesn't get what you're doing, then you really are not doing it. You know what I mean? Because like, he's not the kind of critic to just write it off. He's really there to see what you're doing. And if you can't lay that out in an argument, which plays are essentially living arguments, right? Even if they're classical plays, it is a living argument. If you can't present that to him in a very simple form, then you've done something. Of all the people I've interviewed, I've interviewed these amazing theater artists, right? When the, I've listened to you. Have you, you bombarded me? I did. I listened to like three of them because I know David uh, Harewood. I was supposed to be in the production of Midsummer. Oh, yeah. That Julie Taylor directed. I turned it down because I had a Broadway gig. Right. David took it. Yeah. Uh, and I remember talking to David about it. He said it was kind of a rough process because Julie Taylor doesn't really care too much about the text and relationship. She's really into spectacle and yeah. stage pictures. And but I really respect him. And I love, I listened to about. 10 minutes of part one and about 15 minutes of part one. Oh, good. Really good. And you guys know each other. You're friends. Yeah. So it was really great. You guys had that to talk about. And you'd known each other, worked with each other. Yeah. And then there was another one, uh, Willem Defoe. Willem Defoe. I listened to like 10 minutes of that. And I really like the, I like your lead-in music. Oh, that's I'll do it my, for that. <laughs> so people can connect me with that. It's written by my son. Yes. And my daughter sings it. And your wife is singing yeah. it. Willem Dafoe hates that music. He does? He was like, I can't get that fucking it's, theme it out of like my head. It's like an earwig. I can't stop <laughs> thinking about it. 
I'm glad that you feel benevolent about it. Yeah. Well, listen, what I wanted to say was that I have spoken to a lot of amazing people, but I don't think I've ever been more curious to talk to anybody. And I will tell you why. Because for several reasons, one of which you've just mentioned, which I'll get back to about reviews, but we have a few things in common. We've both worked for this theater company in Brooklyn yeah. multiple times that we love called Theater for a New Audience, run by the great Jeffrey Horowitz. Yeah. And we've both worked for a theater director that we love and revere, Aaron Arbus. You have this five-play collaboration with Aaron, which I'm intensely jealous of. <laughs> and I think what I should really ultimately own up to is how I wanted to talk to you because I'm so curious. We don't know each other terribly well, but we know each other enough. And the bottom line of all this is I've never seen you perform on stage. <laughs> so the mythology of you, John, and this has to be a lie to bust that bubble. This has to be a lie to the fact that you talk about getting bad reviews. I have been researching you. One of the great privileges of this podcast is you get to take a walk around these amazing people. Yeah. I cannot find a trace. I would love to have found that Brown Trinity rep review of yeah, your shitty yeah, Claudia because yeah, that yeah. would have made me feel a lot better. The things that people write about you are the stuff of mythologies. <laughs> they are the stuff of mythologies. And when Aaron talks about working with you, I feel this enormous <laughs> a shaft of a dagger in my heart of sheer jealousy. So, frankly, what I'm saying is if you disappear under mysterious circumstances, yes, it's that we know. somewhere in and around the Sheridan Square area, you'll he know. Was lost, he was last yeah. in circulating yeah. Sheridan Square. Yeah. So I'm fascinated to hear that you read them and you are aware of what is written about you in this absolutely extraordinary way, a couple of which I was so phenomenal that I had to write them down because they were like, you know, I mean, I could sort of retire if I got these. I would just think that it's never <laughs> going to get better than this. I'm done. And the other thing that we have in common is we met years ago. You may not remember this. We've met in a um, in a casting office sort of waiting room in L.A. You were just going out and I was just walking in. And I think I was coming back here to do Coriolanus in the Park in 2019. I think it was around about that anyway. And I think you were coming to do with Aaron, the father, Strimbo's yes. the father, and, and Ibsen's Doll's House. Yeah. And we had this extraordinary moment. I think I said to you, I know what you're about to do, and I know what I'm about to do. And we should get ties made. That so we're in a kind okay, of club. Remember this, this we're in a kind of yeah. weird club <laughs> of emotional extremity with the classical canon, right? Yes. With, the, with, the, yes. with these great, great plays. That when you catch somebody's eye who's about to go into that thing, you get a sort of faraway look in your eye. You yeah. know what the other person yeah, the person is about to engage with, yeah. right? Years ago, I remember when I did Coriolanus for the first time, actually, in England. This is where I first saw you. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I was at the RSC doing Henry IV Part One and Two. That year, they invited a bunch of companies right. from different parts of the world to do the whole, all 37 plays. Right. And we were done. So I decided to spend an extra rest of the week in London. And my dad was coming out because I'm from Bath. Yes, right. So my dad was going out to visit. And when I was in London, I went to the Globe. I didn't care what was playing. I was just like $5 tickets or whatever it was. Sure. I don't care where. I, and I was standing there with the rest of, you know, just the people. And you came walking through the crowd. And I was like, oh, my God, what is this? And it was the first time. And I'd known of the play, never seen it. Right. It came to life. So I was like, oh, that's what Coriolanus looks like. That's what he is. So, And I think I said something to you when I, when you did Much Ado at Tafana with yeah, Aaron. Yeah. I had mentioned that to you yes. after at the opening night party or something right. like that. You may not remember. But that was the first time I saw you. And I was talking to people in the States about you and saying, this. I saw this guy do Coriolanus. His last name is Cake. Can you believe that? <laughs> and he's fucking awesome. And so then, several years later, obviously, I met you for Much Ado, but then you do it here. Yeah. And it was great here as well. In that case, it's making me feel all the more ashamed <laughs> of the legend that is John Douglas Thompson I have yet to see. So I've got to spend some money on an air ticket because I've been living in LA and London. But listen, I suppose what I wanted to ask you was yeah. why? 
why are we obsessed with these things? Why do we share this mutual obsession? Why can't you stop yourself coming back? And back and back and back again. Well, I always felt like these plays contained more about the human condition than, frankly, all other plays. Not all classes, particularly Shakespeare's. I always felt like when I read them, even if I hadn't performed them, that I could find myself in them, right? Yeah. And so it was easy to come back to them multiple times because you encounter them at a particular point in your maturity, like I've done Othello seven times. Each time, it's a whole new experience because I'm at a different place in my life. In not only my maturity as John, as a, as a young man, older now, but just as a maturity as an actor, like what to do with this text, how to handle it, how to calibrate performance, how to open myself up to something, how to work with a scene partner, how to speak a particular section of text or allow it to speak to you. You know, all those kinds yeah. of things you learn as you go forward. So I just don't find, other than when I work on August Wilson, I just don't find work that, that fills me in the same way. And even if I did August Wilson, those are 10 plays, 10 cycles. I don't know if I could do one of those plays seven times, mm. but I think I could do all of Shakespeare's plays as many times as I possibly can, with the exception of the Scottish play. I mm. will only do that once. I had some bad juju happen with that play, so I won't do it again. I would never do Faustus by Marlowe. Certain plays that conjure other spiritual entities that mm. maybe have a negative uh, force. Did you really feel that during the I Scottish play? During the Scottish you, would you rather not talk about it? It's entirely up to you if you don't want to. Well, I, I, will, I will say this much. I won't speak in specific, but I'll say when that run was done, I was doing some readings and I couldn't see. My vision uh, in my left eye, uh, I could only see half of things. And I was like, what is going on? I couldn't feel anything. It wasn't like it was anything painful, but my retina was detached. And this was the day after we closed. And when I got to the doctor, he said, you are so lucky you got here. You were this close from going blind in that eye. There was so much fluid filling up in the center part of your eye. And they operated on me immediately, got the fluid out, fixed it up. That was the culmination of issues I was dealing with in the play. That is how it manifested. Because I said, how did I get this? I'm just an actor. No one hit me in the eye. Yeah. Typically, boxers get yeah. getting punched in the eye. Right. So I said, I mean, nothing comes close to my face. And she said, we, we don't really know. Some people get it based upon their prescription. It could be nearsighted or farsighted, but mostly we see this in boxers who are used to getting hit yeah. in the eye. So anyways, that seemed for me, as I said, was a manifestation of the issues I was dealing with in the play and the the bad juju that it was released, yeah. that I think in my body, and that's how it expressed itself. And I suppose even in the negative version of this, even in not wanting to go near that play again, yeah. what you're really saying is there's a potency to oh, yeah. it and to them all, yeah. which makes other work, August Wilson accepted, seem mm -hmm. a little pallid by comparison. Yeah, I mean, other than someone like Eugene O'Neill or Tennessee Williams, you know, writers who, who I think are certainly in the or American writers who kind of sacrifice themselves to, to tell a story uh, about their own family that represents something more universal than the human condition. So there's a lot of pain in the writing. Like mm -hmm. you go through some of O'Neill's stuff, you just, you want to cry as you're reading it mm -hmm. because you know he was probably crying as he was writing it. But it's also the kind of work that you want to do. You want to give that message to other people to say, this is what true human connection feels like. I want to give that as a gift to another audience member or other people want to attend it. But getting back to the classics, as I said earlier, they are living arguments. So I've never looked at a classic play or a Shakespeare play as like, oh, this 400, 450 year old play or whatever the case may be. How do I make that argument contemporary? Those arguments always lived as contemporary living arguments. But I mean, where are you going to find a character like Othello or Iago, Prospero, Richard? They don't exist in contemporary literary works. They may as fiction, but not as plays. So even when I think about contemporary plays, I'm measuring them up against Shakespeare. So for me, you know, and I, this happened when I did Tamberley, I do want to climb the highest mountain. I want to see if I can get to the peak before I can't climb the mountain. You know what I mean? There is, there is a time that will come 
where I won't be able to make the attempt. You too. We won't be able to make the attempt. I want to play Lear tomorrow because five years from now, I won't be able, who knows, I may not be able to make the attempt. We don't know what's coming. Sure. You know what I'm saying? We just don't know. So it's like, take it now. But these works are so full of the experience of truth and the human condition that you can constantly return to them and learn about yourself, learn about the world that you live in, learn about your past, your present, your future. I mean, I don't know works that are so ripe with gifts for the individual, which then turn out to be gifts for audience members if it's done really well. I challenge people. I say, show me. Show me the play. Show me a collection of plays. Show me a scene if you can't find the play, yeah. and I'll show you something in Shakespeare that's 10 times So I'm going to spend my time doing Shakespeare. <laughs> that's been my philosophy, and it's, it's served me because I tell students when I talk to them, I said, you have a whole library of classics that this individual wrote that you can continually work with for the rest of your life. He wrote a group of plays that you could work on from your adolescence to old age and go back and do some more if you want. Look at you, McKellen did a what? Uh, a Hamlet at what? 80 something? That's cute. Right? Late 70s, yeah. So, so can we. And what other work is full of such questions about yourself, anxiety, love, death, joy, revenge, jealousy? I mean, you just don't find it. So that's why I keep her doing yeah. it because the library is too potent. You said it, man. That was, it's absolutely right. The extremity of it, I always yes. think, what's more extreme? What's more avant-garde? What's yeah, sexy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's sexy? What's more, and how yeah. he will refuse to take his hand away from the flame yeah. all the time. Almost from yeah. the get-go in these plays. Yes. Your yeah. hand is closing in on the flame yeah. all the time. Yeah. I remember teaching a class at my kids' school, whatever it was, a year or two ago, on Hamlet, the, the, the play you're doing right now. Okay, yes. And so, you know, you've got to get through to 14-year-olds who are sitting there. I said, okay, let's talk about this scene when Hamlet comes back from England, yes. turns up at Ophelia's graveside, yes, his girlfriend, yes. who's killed herself, yes. therefore is not allowed a Christian burial. A Christian yes. burial. Her brother who has been loggerheads with Hamlet, who's eavesdropping on this scene, says, must no more be done. Yes. Are you not going to dignify my sister's yes. death with even the basic yes. ceremony? Yes. And overcome with grief, he jumps into her grave. Yes. yes. Whereupon the boyfriend jumps out <laughs> and jumps in there with him. Hamlet. Yes. And says, you think you, you let out of me? Yeah, yeah. What will you do? We'll yes. scream. We'll, you know, he says all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so you've got these two young men yeah. in this dead girl's grave. I mean, who's writing that? Shocking. No one's writing it. I mean, I think all of, many of Shakespeare's characters are so iconic that people that don't even know the play or have seen the play refer yet to the characters right. or situations. Right. So that's how much it's permeated. Yeah our thought, right? Our minds, our heart, our souls. I always have the choice and I want to work on contemporary works and I do, but they're always, they're good, but they're just, and the poetry, the language. And, you know, for me, what's always exciting, it doesn't happen all the time. It happens in the course of a run if things are really working well, where you have surrendered yourself to the text, the situation, the journey, and then the lines are just playing you. And it seems like I try to work to the place where the only way I can explain myself is with the words that I have in the script, right? So the only way for me to do that is to constantly go over the script and rehearse my lines in myriad situations, on the elevator, getting on the train, doing my laundry, cleaning my apartment, walking in the streets of New York so that the lines exist in my mind as many different things in many different ways so that I could build a level of trust when I'm actually truly on stage working that whatever comes out is going to come out the way it's going to come out. It will have the essence and it will have the respect of the dialogue, of course, because it'll be word for word, 
but it'll have the emotion of the dialogue in many different ways because nothing has to be done the same way, right? So it's almost this, it's the only work that I can find where I can truly do the high wire act of the actor. Don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to do. I do have some parameters, but I haven't filled in that stuff inside the parameters. That's all going to happen right now. I remember there was this article about a pickpocket thief, right? A master thief. And they're like, I didn't do what you do. I said, I, I can't explain it because once I start to do it, it's just neurons and synapses. Like, I don't even know what the hands move. They do this thing. It's done. And that's kind of what I always want to work towards as an actor, that it's not so much that I can explain what I do once the gun goes off, once the switch goes on, I just do it. Right? And I know that's a very, it's very simplistic. But I find the more I can kind of shut the fuck up and just kind of do what's in front of me, the better. Uh-huh. I always want to play these really juicy roles in Shakespeare because that gives me the opportunity to just do what's in front of me wholesale. Right? Right. There's so much you're, you're involved in all these scenes. Yeah. You're driving the play. The play's centered around you and you, particularly your story. So I do want that because I want the full benefit of Shakespeare. And those benefits go to those full characters. Not to say always. But if you're playing Richard III, you have a great opportunity to put a stamp on the play as you're Richard III. Sure. Coriolanus, Prospero, you, you name it, Othello, Iago. And so those are the great things about doing the work. But when you have so much of it coming at you, if you can just simplify it and say, okay, I'm just going to do what's in front of me. I know the words. I know the parameters of what I'm supposed to do. Some level of trust so that you can just inhabit the character. Or you surrender. You said something extraordinary about what you're talking about, this idea of a train leaving the station and not knowing its destination. Because the play will take you. You said yeah. something extraordinary about Othello. This, I tell you, you played it seven times. I find it extraordinary. That you don't know from night to night if you'll kill Desdemona. Absolutely. Because if you do know that that's the place and you're just playing the ending, so it's just more, even if you have to trick yourself yeah. to say, I'm. I love my wife. And yeah. We're going to figure, we're going to resolve this. Everything's going to work out because it's supposed to and only to end up in this shocking situation where you killed your wife and then you have to explain to everyone how this happened and then kill yourself. It's a much better way to look at the journey. And particularly, you know, Othello's a really difficult play because I would only do it if a woman is going to do it. I think they understand the play in a much better way than men do. Men tend to focus on all that male energy and tend to not look at the women of Desdemona, Amelia, Bianca. And you can build a production around them as opposed to just say they're just women here on the island of Cyprus with all these warring men who were supposed to fight a war but didn't get a chance to fight a war, so now they're going to fight each other. Because that's a typical male's view of that right, play right. and all the testosterone. So I, 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 I want... A woman's perspective on the play. I think a woman believes more in the romance between uh, Othello and Desdemona and is really willing to invest in that. And I think as a, a female director and the black actor playing Othello are both minorities in many places of the world. So they understand what that is. Uh-huh. When I've worked with male directors, let's say a white male, and they've been good directors, don't get me wrong, but they haven't seen the depth of the play. Sure. They're often looking at the surface of it. And so the character that they tend to connect with is Iago and not Othello. Othello is just an emotive source for the play, like a geyser of emotion that they can turn up or turn down. Mm. So there's no subtlety, no complexity. There's just rage, jealousy, and overextension with emotion is what I've gotten when I've dealt with, when it's been males. Not to say that wasn't good, there was more to it. Mm. So when I started working with female directors, it was just much more care, much more subtlety, much more nuance, so that I could look in the script and say, oh, I see why this happens, that it's not this, or it's not like a straight shoot up to anger and then down. There's many different variations of how to get to the souls. Mm. And then they can take the characters of Desdemona, Bianca, and Amelia 
and make them, as I said, pillars of the production. And I think they should be. And when you've done all this, when you've, say, killed her, killed Desdemona, when you've killed yourself, and you have finished another of these shattering mm. roles you've played, and you drag yourself back to the dressing room, how do you feel? Do you think it's ever taken the toll on you? I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I know it's a play. I'm inhabiting a character and certainly trying to play it to the best of my ability yeah. to give the audience a full understanding of the story and hopefully have it resonate with them so that they think about themselves. Because at the end of the day, I think what you're trying to do and what I'm trying to do is present a universal figure that can be approached by anybody to say, that's me. That person on stage may not fully be me, but there's aspects of that humanity that matches my own. That's why I'm engaged with it. So at the end of the day, when I'm done performing the role, what I've understood is if I don't give it 120%, then I will have a carrying it over. Do you give it 100% empty the tank so that the tank can be full? Ooh. And so I kind of can let it go once the play's over in the knowledge and the safe knowledge of knowing that I gave it my all. It turned out to be good. The audience got the show. The other actors on stage feel good about it. And we did our work. We can now relax into whatever the next step is for us that night, that day, as opposed to fully taking it on and taking it home. It's too much. Okay. But the psychic extremity of it, you, you talked about what the Scottish play you, you felt like the yeah. effect it had on you. Was, that sounds like a different kettle of fish. Sure, but, but the psychic extremity of it, have you never found it overextending you emotionally in ways that you weren't, how can I put it? I'm comfortable. I, I, I hear, I understand the question. I'm really thinking about it. Because, yeah. I mean, there have been plays that, and I don't know if it's a fellow, if I start to think about the racial aspects of it, when I was working with a director who wasn't sensitive to that or was putting, I felt, a fellow in a position where he had to climb out of something and, and, and be so emotional about things. So I missed all the subtlety and handling up the language. It was just all one big yell or scream. There wasn't parody between my character and Iago, those kinds of things I will take home. If I'm in a production where I feel that something outside politically is now inside of our play, then yeah, you can't help taking that home. But for the most part, if I'm in a show and we've done our work and we've done our work well, after that curtain call, it's a smile and back into the dressing room and out to a bar or out home or to a movie sometimes because I'm still charged. Cool. But I never try because I played some of these characters who have huge burdens to bear in the play. And you would think certainly after, but I have to drop that. Yeah. I mean, look at a guy like Tamberlin, you know, you know, all the killing and destruction that he wrought to the society that he says he built was unbelievable. And so at the end of that play, he dies, of course, almost justly, uh, spiritually. So he dies, and then that's it. And then you, I just say, okay, I conquered the world tonight. As Tamberlain, I conquered the audience. I conquered the world. This was a good thing. They got to look inside. And we, we pitched it a little bit as, you know, a fascist ruler. Like, this is what fascism can do. This is a demented democracy, if you want. This is what it does to a society. So does the audience get that? Okay, so they got that. And so these plays can be learning tools. They could help people understand what's happening in their contemporary lives. So there's so much that we can give. And if we just, I always feel like if I've done my work in giving that, then I'm depleted, but I don't have to take on the emotional wherewithal of the character. That's over at the curtain. I've never felt, I mean, maybe you might find something. Maybe I've said something in a, in a review or a, a post-review article or pre-article about something, but it's typically the little fellow, it must have been have something to do with race. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes complete sense. You did say something great in an interview, a uh, wonderful things. And I and I and I sometimes holding people to what they've said, you know, at one point in their life is is unhelpful. But you said I I have some deep wells, places I can go. I don't know if they're always correct and I don't know how <laughs> deep to go fishing. 
but I know I have them always to fish in. I just wanted to ask you, have you ever put the bucket down that well and it's come up dry? I don't think so, only because whether the characters that I've played have been my choice or others uh, in shaping my career as a classical actor, which is what I went to school for, and now it's kind of a hard thing as a moniker. It used to be you got out of school and said, what are you, I'm a classically trained actor. Oh, wow. And now it's like it could be the opposite. (laughs) But for me, I always feel some of the characters I get to play allow me to fish in the deep sea. And I think just Shakespeare in general, even O'Neill and August Wilson, I think what they're requiring the actor is to, I need you to fish in the deep sea. Like this is deep sea diving. Can you go? Right. And I want to pride myself on at least being open and accessible, emotionally available. Not to say that that is what you do for every role. No, I'm not saying that at all. But for the roles that call for that, I feel that I'm prepared to go searching, to go diving, to go exploring, to go excavating, because that's where you're going to find the play. And I also feel that, I don't know, for me, everything is somewhat legacy in the sense that I think it's hard to get on stage and, let's say, not be your parents, not be your dad, your uncle, your mom, your sister, your brother. I mean, why wouldn't you be those things? That's the blood that's pumping through your veins. And why not honor that? Why not embrace that? So many of my characters are shaped from my mom and from my dad, whether I wanted to or not. And I've seen my father in moods. I've seen my father upset. I've seen my father happy. Same for my I think all children have seen those aspects of their parents. And so they exist in me. So I'm, I don't know, I feel very thankful that I get a chance to do theater that allows me to, to play with my legacy. Now that my my parents, God rest their souls, are no longer with us, but I always find it great to honor them through performance. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they're there. And I've talked to people who say, "Oh, you know, if they've had a tough relationship with their family, then it's different." But but they can't escape the fact that that is in them, and that's probably going to be some of the first thing that that comes out of them as an actor. I just say start start from zero, and that zero is going to be aspects of your legacy, whether you want it to be or not. So in that sense, that helps me fish in deep water. Yeah, that's so well put. It is a kind of communion, isn't it, with yeah. all that we are and have come from. Yeah. It's beautifully put. You know, you mentioned your parents. Let's go back. Do you remember, is it possible to remember the first time ever you were in a theater? Oh, well, yeah. I came to New York for Model United Nations, which was... United Nations had this program where they would uh, invite all these colleges. Each college would represent a country, and you'd find out about politics or world politics and how countries depended on each other. And when we were Mexican, we, we, we represented the country of Mexico, and we met with some of the uh, delegates from Mexico so they could tell us their issues. And then we'd set up this model United Nations, and we'd represent Mexico. And we deal with the Americans and trying to get certain things done, some debt taken care of, all that sort of stuff. What we did at night would be, okay, we'll go see a play. So we went to see um, The Mystery of Edwin Drew. Oh, yeah. And Roger Rees was the great lucky. Yes, I remember. that production. And it was fascinating because it might have been the first play I think I've seen and the ending was different. Uh, he was an audience got to they hand out these sheets of paper and say, that's really huge, the ending. And then you didn't know what the ending was going to be. And then you submit all this stuff and then they just do the ending, you know, but it was entertainment. Yeah. I really saw it as like entertainment. I didn't really look at it as a play. It was like going to see a live entertainment. Roughly how old were you? Oh, I was a uh, junior in college. Oh, yeah. Wow. So that that's- was the first time. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness me. And even that, as I st- I'm saying to you now, I didn't think of that as a play. I thought it was like, oh, this is like yeah. live entertainment. Yeah, right. Did you feel when you were in that environment watching this live entertainment that, that something was happening to you? Did you got predestination? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I was just watching live entertainment. Yeah, I was like being at a club. Was yes, it? it was like, yeah, I'm just watching a singer or something. Right. You know? Something that you never saw yourself doing it. It was just live entertainment. So there were no school plays when you were where you would. No, I w- 
geez, I remember I took one class just for credit, like Theater 101. And I remember we were talking about just the history of theater. Then we were talking about lighting. And then I stood up and said, somebody stand up and we'll, we'll talk about lighting. So I raised my hand. I'm the only black person there. And it's like, okay, so we would light this way. And they had no idea how to talk about lighting a dark-skinned person. And so it ended up me, okay, you sit down and someone else get up. And then a white person got up and it was like, okay, so here's how we handle this. So, I mean, I, I hated that. I hated that experience, but I still never saw myself as a anything to do with theater. Once again, it was just for credits. Right. Pure credits. And a couple of my friends, because I went to a Jesuit high school, Jesuit college. Yeah, whereabouts in the world? I went to McQuay Jesuit High School in Rochester, New York. Right. And I went to Lemoyne College which is also a Jesuit institution right. in Syracuse. Okay. That's why I said, oh, I'll take a theater course for some quick credits and, and be done with this shit. So it wasn't until once I got out of college, I moved to Connecticut. I got a job with this Fortune 500 company called Unisys. Well, at the time it was called Burroughs. They sold computers to banks, government industries, insurance industries. So I got a job with them. I trained with them in Chicago and in Pennsylvania, and then I trained as a salesperson. And I went out selling computers to the banking industry. At the time, I was living in New Haven, and I met a young woman, and you know I liked her, and so I wanted to be more than friends. So I asked her out on a date, and that I wasn't sure what the date would be, but I wanted it to be something special so that she'd think I was special. So I didn't want it to be like a movie or like just dinner and something like that, or a football game, whatever. I wanted it to be like a museum or something, or a play. Classy. Very classy. <laughs> so, so I invited her to this play called Joe Turner's Coming Gone by August Wilson that was playing at Yale Rep. And I lived across the street from Yale Rep in this place called um, the Taft Hotel. Oh, yeah. So the day came to see the play. Um, she didn't show up. And couldn't get her dorm room, couldn't get her, couldn't reach her. She was a Yale med school student, couldn't reach her. So I was like, okay, I got these two tickets. Do I go home or do I go to the show? I said, oh, should I, if I go home, I'm just going to be sad about the fact that I got stood up. So I'm going to go to the show. So I went to the show and I had an empty seat next to me. <laughs> and from the very moment, those people that know Joe Turner's come and gone, one of the uh, defining moments of the play is this character, Harold Loomis shows up at someone's doorstep with his little daughter, probably about seven or eight years old, holding her hand. And he's there trying to get a room in this house. These were boarding houses. And he just shows up at the door. And it's such a striking image, this huge man with a long coat and a hat holding the hand of this little girl looking for a room because essentially they're looking for, he's looking for his wife, which is the mother of the young girl. But it's this image, and it's often the poster image for the play. So anyway, so I saw this play, and I was watching it, and I was just, I was in heaven. I was watching this play, fully engaged, fully leaning forward. You know, you get that thing when you're watching a play, and you're like this, and then you're like this, and you're just leaning, and you can't, you know, you're waiting for every word. You're totally engaged. I wasn't even thinking about my date, and as a matter of fact, had the date been there with me, yes. I wouldn't have been as, as engaged. I wouldn't have been watching the player to been trying to figure out how she was feeling and, you know, what, what's going to happen later on that night or we're going to go get drinks or whatever. So I would have been preoccupied with what's going on in her mind as opposed to op being occupied with the play. So I watched this play and when I got out of the play, I was like, I think that's what I want to do. Oh, my could That's what. It was a yeah. Damascene moment. Yes. I like the way you put it. Yes. And do you think it had to have been that play of all plays that struck you like a thunderbolt? Yeah, and I'll tell you why. Because as I looked at the play, it's like I was looking at my dad, my uncle, uh, my brother, my mom. It was kind of a religious experience because obviously I hadn't been to plays other than that mystery of Edwin Drood, which is, as I said, life entertainment. But I was like watching my family or aspects of my family as live entertainment, you know what I mean? And in that respect, it was so moving. It invited me in a way that I don't know another initial play would have. Even if it was Shakespeare, I just wouldn't have been able to see myself in the way I was able to see myself in August Wilson. 
You know, I often tell people, August Wilson made me an actor, but Shakespeare gave me a career. That's pretty much how it's gone. So I knew when I left that theater and I was praying to God that make me an actor, give me the capability to do what I just saw, what I just witnessed happen to me, allow me to do that, let me do that. And so it took about six, seven years before that really happened. Oh, really? Before I even went to school. In which time, by the way, you're a successful I salesman. Was, I saw you're earning good money. Thanks. Earning very good money. Yeah. Out of Mercedes Benz. You could be running the company. Yes, by now. <laughs> Thinking you could have sold your shares. I yes, I could have been a very a private wealthy island. man. I could have been Jesus, a Jesus, they're still working for minimum <laughs> wage for green. <laughs> So that's the story. So, so six or seven years passed, and then it hadn't ever left you. Absolutely. You just couldn't get out of the life that you were in quite or find. Well, they, they finally laid me off. They laid off a bunch of us. The real estate crisis started to happen in wow. the West Coast and kind of made its way to the East Coast. And once again, I sell to banks. So banks are all right. based upon real estate. And as that started to kind of go haywire, they let us go, and they gave us a great unemployment plus um, severance package. I had 18 months worth of money to kind of do nothing. And I knew I didn't want to go back to work in that same industry. So I said, now's the time to look into this acting thing. Do you think if you hadn't been laid off, things might have been different? Impossible to say. Impossible to say uh, because the layoff just kind of was almost like perfect, perfect timing. And I get severance. I don't have to worry about where my money's coming from. I can still well, pay rent, live in my well, condo, got my car, could whoever, pursue this acting thing. Whoever shit canned you owes the, <laughs> we owe the thanks of the American theater because, you know, the idea that you could possibly have been the sliding doors versions of Yes, yes, right. Yeah, yeah, because obviously, you know, yeah. most of the brilliant people I know could probably be brilliant in a, in a bunch of different yes, fields, absolutely, right? Absolutely. There absolutely. is a, some extraordinary essence to them which yeah. is compulsive and brilliant and you know unlikely to go without reward so you become an actor you go back to brown is yeah what happened? brown and trinity were connected as a as a drama program i went to trinity at the time and actually it was rhode island college that was attached to trinity okay then they moved from rhode island college to brown yeah, I'd have met Brian and Steven. I remember even meeting Brian and Steven, Brian McAlay to Steven Berenson. And I went in to audition for the drama school. I was recommended to it by someone who'd been working with the company's name is Ricardo Pitzweiler. I said, oh, you should go to this school. I, I worked with the company. It'd be a good place for you to learn, you know, the business and how to become an actor. So I said, okay. I gave them my application. I went in, auditioned for Brian and Steven, and I had my Mercedes-Benz parked right outside. And I said, you know, I can't get that car up to come to school. So the only way I can make it here is if, if I'm worthy enough to get a scholarship. Now in my second year, so you could keep your best. So keep my best. <laughs> yeah. But in my second year, I gave them back the money for the scholarship for another student because I was okay. But yeah, yeah. What did you audition with? Do you remember? Yes. Uh, uh, what's the Mark Anthony over Julius? Yeah. Apologize me the pieces yeah. of earth that every weekend. Gentle with these butchers. Uh, so that was that. And I did a contemporary piece uh, by Ella McLaughlin, who played the angel in Angels in America. Uh -huh. She had a piece called About Sally, was, which was about this man who, uh, who was having, going to be having a baby. So I was going to be having a baby. He never expected to have one and didn't want one. And then started to dream about the life that he and the baby will have when the baby would be born. And then the baby was still born. And it was his story, his journey with the imaginary child that never lived. And coming from this completely unlikely other part of the world, meaning other part of Sydney's sort of life experience, doing mm -hmm. this completely different thing, being a successful salesman, did you have a sense that you could do it when you were auditioning with these parts? You obviously could because you got into the school. Did you feel somewhere you understood and knew this instinctively? I think I knew some things because everything is grist for the mill. And as a salesperson, I gave presentation, uh -huh. got up in front of groups of people to educate them on things. And that was like a sales pitch, if you will. Right. And so that was kind of, I felt perhaps I might be halfway there. Right. So there wasn't a fear 
in getting up in front of people right. and presenting, whether it was something that I had to learn or something that was given to me to disseminate to others. So I think I had that. And once again, you know, I went to a Jesuit high school and Jesuit college, which is a very liberal arts education that taught me how to do deductive reasoning and think and to move in many different directions and to figure out what would be best for me at a particular time in my life. And so it worked. I wasn't fearful of making the shift from salesperson to actor. I just felt, yeah, well, there's something there. And I had this severance. I said, okay, if I can't get any, no biters in two years, then I'll let it go. But right now I have to pursue this because this is hot on my mind. So that's how it went. And I got those two years of school. After the two years of school, no work for quite a while. And then I got my first job and then that turned into second. You start to network, you know, as the idea was, you get your second job while you're working on your first yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Keeping that in mind. Sure. And I knew how to network as a business person because yes. that's all we did was network for the next sale. So I knew how to take advantage of that, meet people, let them know who I was, give them my headshot and resume, let them know what I do, and, you know, find auditions wherever they were. Because this is all without an agent. You know, all this stuff that you're doing on yourself back in the old days, you get your headshot and resume, glue it together, mail it, go to the office, drop it off. Find out from your friends what's happening in the city, who's doing what and when, and getting yourself in there, getting an audition, all that sort of stuff, which, you know, now agents do. Sure. But prior to then, and I was up in the Boston, Providence area, so there weren't agents to do that. So that's what I did. And was there a part where you you got the bite and you felt like you stood up and did it and you were like, oh yeah, this is well, going to be okay? I had a horrible experience, a defining experience. I would say as part of my own personal mythology. The first day of classes at Trinity, I went to the Linkletter voice class. We had a Linkletter teacher, Paula Langston, wonderful, wonderful lady. She teaches now at uh, Boston College. She runs that. But anyways, um, part of that exercise, that first day of class is 14 students who don't even know each other. So this was a way of learning about your voice and learning about one another, you know, all these acting classes, I'm sure you've had them. It's all about bringing people together and get letting you get to know people in very short periods of time. As you do in a play, you go to a play, you work on a play, you get to meet someone and work with them over the course of two months and you know their lives, which would take the average person 10 years to do. It's an accelerated intimacy. Anyways, we had to draw on a big sheet of construction paper our, our bodies and where we think our voices go. You know, because they're just suits. So some people do it coming from the throat, from the belly, from their legs, from their back, from their head or whatever. And since I'd been giving presentations as a corporate salesperson, I decided not to go first. And I was the second oldest person in the class. Because you're like 29 at this I point? I was 29 at the point. And I said, I'm going to let everybody else go in front of me, see what they got. So everybody got up there, presented their voice, and I got up there. And the teacher said, well, John, you know... You ready to present? I said, yeah, now that everybody, now that all the rookies have gone, I can say a professional presentation really looks like about someone's voice. So I get up and I say, oh, I think my voice is like you know, right here in my chest. And, uh, and I talk a little bit. She said, do you want to tell us something? And I was like, no more than what I've already told you. She said, are you sure? That she just kept pestering me to say, do you have to tell us something? And this is what happened. The night before I had come to the theater, to see the Scottish play that they were doing at Trinity. As I was walking to the theater, this was the night before first day of classes. As I was walking to the theater, two white women were walking towards me. And as I got to them, almost in unison, in sync, they moved their pocketbooks from one side of their body to the other. So from the inside to the outside, as if they were trying to say, we know you're going to try to rob us or take our pocketbooks, and we're going to move them from you. And it just registered subconsciously. I still walked down the street, crossed the street, went to the theater to see some RSC veterans who were from Africa, I believe Nigeria, who were part of the RSC company that had kind of broken off and started touring around the United States. They did the Scottish play and maybe two others, eight actors doing all these different productions. And so they were at Trinity. They were invited to Trinity. A wonderful, wonderful production. And after we got to meet the actors, talk to them. So it was like another great thing for me to see all these black African actors doing the classics. Right. 
And I'd never seen that. That was really new for me. So the next day I go to classes and she said, did anything happen to you? Has something happened to you? She just kept pestering me to talk about an experience that I didn't know if she knew, but I knew that I had. So I said, well, last night I came to see the play. Yeah, what what do you think about the play? I said, well, the play was good. Anything happened? I said, well, before the play, I was walking on the street and there were two women coming at me, two white women walking towards me. I was walking towards them. And when I got to them, they moved their purse away from me. And I started to go deeper into that thing that happened and dissecting it. And it made me extremely emotional as it would. And it made all of my classmates extremely emotional. Once again, I was the only black person in the class of, of 14. And we were there for 45 minutes, me bawling my eyes out and telling that story from different angles and how much it hurt me and how painful of an experience it was that I had lodged in my subconscious and that is now living fully in my conscious that I'm expressing to them. And they're crying, the teacher's crying. And then class was over and I was still crying. I was inconsolable. And she was there talking and she said, you know, John, if you could be that honest and tell us that story, that's it. If you could just be what you just did for this class, no forcing, no pushing, just be honest and tell your story. That's what we're here to teach you is to do that. And if you can do that, you can be an actor. And so that was this defining moment for me to kind of understand the necessity of truth, right? That is your boilerplate. And if you can be honest with yourself and honest with the material and open yourself to the material, you can be an act. And that's what she taught me. And so that, that stuck in my mind. You were talking about earlier about this whole thing about deep wells. Well, that's the perfect example. Yeah. I never cried more in my life. And not to say that that's what you do or that's what I do when I get on stage. Sure. I'm just talking about being emotionally available to material, you know, that that is necessary. So that was my experience. And through that, I gained confidence in the sense like, okay, maybe I, maybe I can do this. You know what I mean? Let me step back and really be honest. Maybe I can do this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. That's the end of Act One of my conversation with the great John Douglas Thompson. Please come back and join me for the rest of the chat in Act Two. Yeah, you won't regret it. We get into uh, how it feels to read the love letters that critics routinely write to him in newspapers and magazines, why we both love an extraordinary director called Aaron Arbus. Um, which actor is like being on stage with a dog, a baby, and a genius all at once? Uh, what it was like to, uh, to rehearse and play Samuel Beckett's Endgame completely blind. Um, and how his characters talk to each other, uh, sometimes actually, literally. Exciting conversation going on right at the moment between Othello and Claudius, uh, John's having. What pisses him off about the theatre? And what it was like to be uh, the worst Hamlet in America. Oh, and then we finish off with some exciting casting ideas for the two of us to do a play together, if anyone's interested in that obviously just asking for a friend john needs the work stage 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 door johnny stage 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 door johnny
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.